Alrighty, let's get started with Torah study tonight. Good evening. Welcome into the Deep Dive Bible Study. I am your host, Tim Hatch, here on Tim Hatch Live, youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. Kicking off tonight with liking the video, subscribing to the video, hitting the notification bell, get notified every time we go live. That would be a real big blessing to my life, to this channel, to what we're trying to do here. Uh, for your spiritual good, uh, welcome in all of those who have rejoined us for our study on Torah. It is part eight, and we are going to deep dive tonight into a text that you are going to say, I can't believe that's in the Bible. Literally, that's what you're going to say. It can be hard to read the Bible, right? For one, it's long, 66 books and thousands of pages. Number two, it's old. It was written, uh, the most recent parts of it, 1900 years ago, 1800 years ago. And then number three, it's got some crazy statements like today's topic. As in, what do you do when you want to take a captive woman home with you whose husband you just killed? Yeah, that's in the Bible. Let's get started with Deep Dive. The Deep Dive, Season 7 presents Torah, the Law of Life. Very excited, very excited indeed to get into tonight's topic, and you're going to love it because the Bible is difficult to read. You do need people to interpret it. There does need to be historical analysis, linguistic analysis, contextual analysis. There has to be translation analysis. That's my job. That's my behind the scenes work. Every time I've preached the word or taught the word, I am in deep into that um, examination of the scripture so that I can bring out from it uh, timeless truths that were contained in a timed culture, but can also then be translated or transferred to our time. So timeless truths that were given to people in a timed culture, historical culture, and then are translated or transmitted to our culture, our time today. So yeah, we are in Deuteronomy chapter 21. And the reason why we're in Deuteronomy 21 on the heels of going through the Ten Commandments is simple. We're going all the way over to the other end of the spectrum when it comes to Torah, because Torah has a lot of laws that make sense. Do not kill, right? Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. People can get on board with those. Even you know, Christians can, uh, non-Christians can say, well, I don't put the Lord God first because I'm not a Christian, but I understand why that's a law. Well, we're going to the other end of the spectrum. And I mean, we're going all the way over because I think if we can tackle this text today, it's going to, number one, empower you for studying other parts of Torah. Number two, it's going to alleviate some of the criticisms that you've probably heard about Torah from skeptics and atheists and even have maybe read about in some of the more recent atheist attacks on scripture. Number three is going to give you great confidence in God's word. And finally, and this is going to shock you. It's going to teach you about your savior, Jesus Christ, because this is not about us. It's about Jesus. So we're starting today 
difficult sayings in Torah. And I'm going to say this is part one of a series within the series. <laughs> yeah. So, so the series is called Torah. And this is now a series within the series on Torah. And it's going to be a series on the difficult sayings of Torah. And we're going to do another series in this study this year within this series. So again, overarching series, Torah, the law of life, but underneath some sub series. Number one, difficult sayings, difficult texts like tonight. Then number two, we're going to do difficult concepts like slavery, uh, like warfare, holy war. How do we justify that? Like uh, there was another one on the top of my head. Um, oh, child sacrifice. Why does God ask Abraham, 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 sorry, to sacrifice Isaac and other crazy texts? We will be looking at it. Remember, Torah is not just a law. It's the first five books of Moses. So my aim and my hope in this study is to first bring right out into the open the attacks against the Bible because of these crazy texts and then kind of lead you through. How do you look at these texts in three ways? So with that in mind, let's get started in part one of Difficult Sayings in Torah. The atheist angle has made a huge, um, made up a huge amount of ground in our cultural language about scripture over the last 20 years. The 9-11 attacks that were rooted in fundamentalist Islam or jihadist Islam really gave birth to a new atheist revolution. Uh, at the time, I was in ministry just starting out, and Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Sam Harris, and some other very notable, very loud, very vocal atheists came out with books about how religion is poison, everybody who's religious is stupid. Oh, Bill Maher wrote um, and directed and starred in that book, uh, the movie, the documentary Religious. Religious. And so there was this kind of renaissance, if you will, of atheism that came out in response to what looked to be a religious attack upon our society. Well, it's dissipated over the last uh, 20 years, but it's still there. In his book, God is Not Great, Christopher Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens who is now dead and <laughs> facing probably eternal condemnation, wrote these words in chapter 7. He said, The Old Testament contains a warrant for trafficking humans for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for bride price, and for indiscriminate massacre. But we are not bound by any of it because it was put together by crude, uncultured human animals. Okay. This is the atheist angle on the text. Look at all the horrible texts. Oh, and the reason why it's horrible is because it was put together by horrible people. But I will say right off the bat that Christopher Hitchens is very much disconnected from reality. Because even as an evolutionist, you have to agree that we all came from those who were here before us, right? No one just popped into the modern world out of thin air with greater moral values and a sense of right and wrong. We all descended from formerly barbaric peoples, okay? And society, as little as 150 years ago, friends, was still enacting slavery on this continent in this great free nation, right? And as little as, what, 70 years ago, Jim Crow laws and segregation were the law of the land and everybody accepted it as normative. We have made great advancements, but we must not be historically arrogant nor ignorant to suggest that we are better than those people. No, we come from those people. They were operating within a context and a time in which they lived. We are now operating in a time and context in which we live. And I absolutely guarantee 
that future generations will look back on our generation and say, I can't believe that you used to do blank, okay? Because the human experience has been morphing and transitioning. Sometimes it takes a step back, sometimes it takes a step forward, sometimes it takes a step back and two steps forward, sometimes it does the opposite, a step forward and two steps back in cultivating a free, just, more humane, more, if you will, civil society. So, when Christopher Hitchens takes on the writers of the Bible, he does a disservice to historical analysis right off the bat because everybody comes from historical people. Now, when it comes to the difficult sayings, um, I've got a couple of points that I want to share with you right off the bat. Let's get started with them. Number one, the Bible is not written to you. That is a predicate for everything we do in this study. The Torah, the first five books of Moses were written by Moses to Israel, ancient Israel, 3,500 years ago. So it's not to you. This is not God saying, hey, modern Americans, when you're at war, and you see a beautiful woman who belongs to the enemy and you just killed her family, hey, take her into the house and marry her. Like, this is a good plan. No, this is not written to you. It's written for you, but it's not written to you. Number three, the Bible's 3,500 years old, like we just said, especially this text we're going to deal with right now coming from Moses. Number three, the hard sayings in the Bible invite us to lean in, not check out. So many people take the easy road. The easy road is to look at it with a very unscientific mindset, which is what Christopher Hutchins and the New Atheists do, and to say, well, I don't understand it because it comes from a context of absolute barbarism, so it's so easy for me just to discard it out of hand because, frankly, and this is what they want to admit, they want to discard it, they don't want um, accountability to God, and they don't want to be held to his standards. So it's easy to wipe out the whole Bible when you can pick a few hard sayings and and check out of those sayings. Uh, Number four, the hard sayings reveal God's heart for the helpless, and I think this is probably... The biggest point that I need to make, and we're going to make actually through our analysis tonight of Deuteronomy 21, that God in the law is always keeping the helpless person in mind, even in the text where we don't understand it. As we peel back the layers historically, biblically, contextually, linguistically, We're going to say, wait a second, God is protecting the people who can't protect themselves. And even in this text here tonight. And then number five, and this is most important. Remember, Torah protects the community from the individual. Torah, the law of God, says the individual will not, through his own desire to live as he pleases, upend the communal peace that God wants his people to experience. So all that in mind, we now have laid a foundation for the Difficult Saying series that is going to be a series within the series of Torah. Part one, the law of the captive woman. And let me just say, this text is a doozy. Deuteronomy 21.10. Listen to it. Just listen to it just as you are. Okay, don't even start to analyze this. We will get to that. But just listen to it and you can see why the atheists make their points. Deuteronomy 21, 10 to 14. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. 
<laughs> okay, raise your hand in the comments if you're happy we're talking about this text. And you should be, because, again, there is so much to be discovered in this text that you're going to love it. I'm, I'm telling you, I am pumped. I'm amped to get to this content, to, to get this to this content and to do more of these um, difficult saying series in the future for uh, season seven of the Deep, deep Dive Okay, right off the bat, what do you see? What do you hear in the text when you read it? Um, you probably hear a lot of misogyny, patriarchy, um, totalitarianism, fascism a little bit, uh, chattel property, uh, women being subservient to men. You know, all of these kind of things that the Bible gets accused of on a regular basis. Like it's just on the surface. And I, and I put this out there just so you could have it as what I could say from my point of view, the text is saying that God is giving permission for Israelites to take women from other nations to be their sex slaves. And when they grow tired of them, they can just cut ties with them uh, with impunity. They, there's nothing holding them accountable to these barbaric and enslaving actions. That's the skeptic's reading of this text. And if you stay there as a modern reader, you have absolute permission to get angry with the Bible. You have, you know, absolute right. I wouldn't say permission, but absolute right to come to the conclusion, if you will, that the Bible is outdated. It's unbelievably misogynistic, patriarchal, um, you know, misogynistic, all those kind of things. So you, you, you have the skeptical view here right on the right on the right out in the front here on the deep dive, because I, I don't want to live in a cocoon of Bible study wherein I understand this text and shame on you for not. No, I have to come across the bridge, come and meet the text with you where you are and then bring you in. But here's a couple of things we got to want to be aware of when it comes to this text and difficult texts like it. The temptation is to judge this text based on my context. I am a 21st century American. I am a male living in an American state. I live in a free and prosperous country. We are not enacting holy war. Uh, we, America does not have a covenant with God. These things are important contextual realities that I have and you have, if you're listening to me from America, that the ancient Israelites did not have. Number two, the temptation is to question the validity of other passages, even to questioning essential te tenets of Christian faith. This is where the deconstruction Constructionist movement comes from, you know, the people who are saying I deconstructed my Christian faith and now I'm no longer a believer. And what they do is they go to difficult passages like this and they say, I can't believe that I was taught that this is the word of God. How horrible of me. What did my parents or what did my teachers or what did my church do to me? Right. That's the idea here is that there's a slippery slope once you start uh, becoming the skeptic, judging the Bible instead of investigating the Bible. And that leads me to number three in the temptation. And this one's big because the temptation is that in effect, I get to stand in judgment over an ancient text based on my limited experience and contextual frame of reference. Okay. That's a mouthful, but let me just say it like this. You get to tell the Bible what's true and what's not true. The Bible is now subservient to you. This is a very unhealthy. And I would say just a very unethical approach to any text any ancient text, ne never mind the fact that I truly believe absolutely that the Bible is the Holy Word of God. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is written by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and it is God breathed. You know, all, all the classic and errant um, uh, doctrines, I believe them. And uh, 
take that aside and you have to look at the Bible for what it is, an ancient document in an ancient time that we did not to which we did not belong. And to take it with just the respect for where it comes from is essential, regardless of the text. You read Homer, you read Tacitus, you read Plato with respect to the person and their context. You don't read them and sit in judgment of them because they were different than you. Right. We, we have and secularists have far more respect for other works of ancient literature than they do the Bible. And it's kind of disingenuous on that on that part. So we don't stand in judgment of the text. We let the text speak contextually, historically and biblically. And then as Christians, um, gospel-y, and I don't even know if that's a word, but let me just turn the word gospel into an adverb, if you will. We, we receive the text gospel-y, okay? So three interpretive paths that we're going to look at in this text tonight. Number one, the historical context with contemporary comparison. That was huge. Where does this text lie in history? And then what do contemporaries of ancient Israel say about this same situation? That cannot be spoken about enough. What did other, you know, Mesopotamian Chaldean cultures say about a cap, a girl captured in warfare when you conquered her nation? It's important to read that because then we're going to have a picture of, well, where does God's word stand in relation to the ideals or the ideologies of other cultures that did not have the Holy Spirit inspired text? And we're going to find stark differences as we get into this. Number two is the biblical context. And here's what we're going to do there. Where is this text in Bible history? And that's very important, particularly with Deuteronomy 21. What is God saying in, in this text in light of where he speaks around these issues in other texts? And that's, there's not so much to be had um, in this text on that on that nature, but I'm just drawing the, the, the interpretive pathways for you. It is for other texts, but not this one. And then uh, number three, we, uh, number uh, or still under biblical context, we have to understand that the biblical context is the interpretive context. So even the first line in the phrase, when you go to war, okay, is a biblical context. We're not dealing with peacetime law here. We're dealing with a very small subset of the human um, historical story, Israel enacting holy war prescri prescribed by God to take conquest of the, of the Holy Land. And then finally, the gospel context. Where is Jesus revealed in this passage? And that is going to be, and I want you to stay with me for the whole night. Oh, stay with me for the whole night because that is going to be the segment of our study that is going to really inspire you and hopefully uplift you. But what I'm trying to do with these three pathways is to not just teach you about this text, but listen to me very carefully here. I want to give you a roadmap for studying other parts of Torah. I want you to take these tools and develop them within yourself and use them for all of your Bible study and examination. Hopefully, and I, I pray that this is the case, hopefully you will one day read the Bible through all the way from beginning to the end and you will get to difficult passages and through this study, you will have tools that you didn't formally have at least to begin to examine the biblical text from an honest and upright idea uh, framework. You, you don't dismiss it. You don't interpret it in your, you know, modern context. 
And you don't do what the new atheist did, which is just to say, this difficult text gives me a reason to just wipe the Bible, write the Bible off in completion, uh, completely because it does not jive with who I am and where I live. Okay? So, historical, biblical, gospel context. Let's do number one on the list, the historical context. Okay, I got a book recommendation for you. Uh, I speak very highly of this book. It's called Is God a Moral Monster? It's by Paul Copen. Paul Copen is a philosophy professor at Marquette University. He wrote this many years ago, but it is a very good book. Subtext is Making Sense of the Old Testament God. And it has been a very great help for me in my preparation for this study. And I would um, encourage you to get it yourself. It's a good read. It's not hard. And he has really distilled the concepts of uh, biblical interpretation into a very readable manner. So you probably... Uh, might get confused at some parts, but it's a, it's a good book nonetheless. Let me give you a direct quote from the book, which I found invaluable and I think is a great way for us to first approach the historical context of difficult parts of Torah. He says, long quote here, uh, when we journey over the but when we journey back over the millennia into the ancient Near East, we enter a world that is foreign to us in many ways. Life in the ancient Near East wouldn't be just alien to us with all of its strange and ways and, and assumptions. We would also see a culture whose social structures were badly damaged by the fall. And that is important. We're talking about sinful people damaged by sin. So, so many people want to just dismiss sin. This is like the bad things you do. No, sin is a bad thing inside of you. The Bible calls it iniquity, which is kind of like... If you break it down into a two-part word, inequity, unequal things are inside of you. That is what sin is, or the Greek word for sin, harmatia, which means missing the mark. Bible, the Bible refers to wickedness. Uh, this is a state of being that damages your heart, your mind, your soul, your spirit, everything. Uh, back to the text. Anyway, back to the quote. He says, within this context, God raised up a covenant nation and gave the people laws to live by. He helped to create a culture for them. In doing so, he adapted his ideals to a people whose attitudes and actions were Influenced by deeply flawed structures, okay? So deeply flawed people, badly damaged people, uh, produced deeply flawed structures in the ancient world. He says, as we'll see with regard to servitude, punishments, and other structures, a range of regulations and statutes in Israel reveals a God who accommodates. And this word, oh, I love how he phrases this. This is a God who accommodates in the Torah. He accommodates what? The fact that he understands that we have deeply flawed structures that are rooted in deeply damaged people. He says, yet contrary to the common neo-atheist caricatures, and this is what I was talking about uh, earlier in the show, these laws weren't the permanent divine ideal for all persons everywhere. God informed his people that a new enduring covenant would be necessary. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. By the, long, by the Old Testament's own admission, the Mosaic law was inferior and future looking. Now look at this. This is so important. God already said in the Bible, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, that the Old Testament's Mosaic law is not God's final plan. And every Christian should say amen. Every Christian who knows anything about Jesus knows that he comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then, as we have already talked about in our examination of the Ten Commandments, Jesus elevates the law, gives us a new law. In fact, he even says to the disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. I am the fulfillment of the law. The fulfillment of the law is you do no harm to your neighbor. You love your neighbor as yourself. No one really fully does that. Jesus did fully do that. And through him and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can be transformed into people who do that more and more as we grow older. So this is the framework, okay? Damaged people in the ancient world, damaged by sin, led to damaged structures or flawed structures. God meets people where they are. 
can't stress that enough. He does not invade earth with heaven. He actually cultivates heaven within earth, which is what Jesus told us to pray in the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on, he- on earth as it is in heaven. So in heaven slowly um, permeates the earthly realities, bringing more human flourishing, bringing a healthier environment for people and the way we treat each other. And that is a slow process, but God does not just slam it down on us. He doesn't. He brings it uh, through people, through his spirit, ultimately in the new covenant uh, over a long period of time. This is another important contextual insight into studying Torah historically. Uh, In the law, God meets us halfway. That's what basically Paul Copen is saying there, that God meets us where we are. He does not just foist, you know, the, the, the moral precepts upon us. He is dealing with deeply flawed, deeply hurt, deeply damaged people. So there's a New Testament passage that deals with this directly. When Jesus is asked by the Pharisees about divorce, the Bible says that the Pharisees came up to him in Matthew 19 and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? Where does Jesus go back to, by the way? From the beginning, he made the male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That's Genesis 2. And the two shall become one flesh. So he goes back to where? He goes back to Genesis 1. And Genesis 2. Okay, now watch what the Pharisees do. Uh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, this is the Pharisees now, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? That is, that is a direct uh, reference to Deuteronomy uh, 24, where in fact we do have a law concerning divorce. That yeah, if you are unhappy with your wife, you can write her a certificate of divorce, certificate of divorce and send her away. So is that the ideal? Does the story end there? Does God say, okay, Deuteronomy 24, period. That's marriage. And does Jesus refer to Deuteronomy 24 as the ideal for marriage? No, not at all. Let's look at Jesus' response because it's brilliant. Matthew 19, verse 8. He says, he said to them, it was because of the hardness of your heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Notice what Jesus does. This is phenomenally important. Jesus leapfrogs this Old Testament law goes all the way back to Genesis to the original intention for mankind in the Garden of Eden. That is what God wanted. One man, one woman in holy matrimony forever for until death until well forever because there was no death. And so he is not in any way saying that this law is the ideal. God is God is. You know, he's happy when you get divorced, at least write her a certificate. That way she can get married to somebody else with a legal certificate document that she's divorced from you and she can find, you know, sustenance and happiness and love somewhere else. (laughs) No, no. Jesus says, look, there's a reason why that law was given. And this is an important, very, very important historical idea here. The law was written to hardened, damaged sinners who were not able to even consider the ultimate ideal that heaven wants for earth i.e. marriage, one man, one woman, for life. In other words, God, Jesus is saying, that, that passage about the certificate of divorce, that's a concession. God is meeting you halfway. And that's not what his ideal is. So let's not bicker, basically, is Jesus saying, about whether that law is applicable today. Let's look at that law for what God is doing in human history to bring about a better human society. So I, I, I put this on uh, on my presentation just so I could kind of 
clearly stipulate what we're talking about here. Uh, Jesus is teaching the true manner of reading the law. The law is not an all-time guide for all people, but a less than desirable standard for a hard-hearted people. And that's important. You don't read the Old Testament the way you read the New Testament. Nobody does. No, you, at the same time, you don't do what Andy Stanley says to do, and that is unhitch from the Old Testament. We don't unhitch from the Old Testament because in the Old Testament is Jesus revealed. In the Old Testament, the gospel is absolutely preached. You just have to read it properly. And thirdly, in the Old Testament, you have the restraint of sin in the law from Almighty God. So this is not a one, the, the, the Torah is not a one size fits all kind of mindset from God on how we're supposed to live. It is God meeting us where God meeting humanity, where it was, and then leading them forward. Do not steal is one of the 10 commandments, right? But God moves it forward in the new covenant in Ephesians chapter 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal. Okay. That's old Testament, but rather let him work labor doing honest work with his own hands, making money so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So what happens is the full expression of the law is we're no longer takers. Now we are sharers and we are others focused. The law does no harm to his neighbor. You see the transition. You're going from Old Testament and God is meeting people where they are with the Ten Commandments and he is moving them along through the historical narrative of the Bible. Jesus comes, the Holy Spirit descends, and now people who would usually take, their hearts are changed and they move from taking to giving and other people are um, blessed because you're changed. This is the trajectory of reading the biblical text and is how we're supposed to approach it. Let me address something else about the historical context of this text. And the, and, and the question should be asked, what did other cultures say about this context? Like when, a, when, it, comes to, when it comes to war in the ancient world and you find a woman that you're attracted to, uh, what do you do? Well, the ancient world, we do have proof. We have text. We have history um, to examine. A Jewish um, commentator named Robert Alter wrote the Hebrew Bible commentary, and here's what he said. Throughout the ancient Mediterranean world, captive women of vanquished peoples were assumed to be the due sexual prerogative of the victors. Compare Briseis at the beginning of the Iliad. This law exceptionally seeks to provide for the human rights of the non-Israelite woman who falls into this predicament. So what is Alter doing there? He's saying, just consider the Bible standard here regarding the captive woman to other ancient writings uh, regarding um, women who are taken captive in war. And it's night and day. And it's, there's no comparison. There is such a far better treatment of this woman in this biblical text than in any other contemporary literature that we have on hand. And that's important because if we believe the Bible is from God, it should be better of its treatment of the poor, the marginalized, the captive, the slave, and all these human structures that are less than enviable, but are nonetheless uh, realities that we deal with. Now, let's go into biblical context because we don't just read the Bible comparatively with other forms of ancient literature. We read the Bible comparatively with itself. So the question must be asked, where are we in the Bible? Well, we are in the Torah. We are in the first five books of Moses. By the way, where in the first five books of Moses are we? We're in part five, right? We're in um, Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So 
what happens after Deuteronomy? Joshua. And Joshua comes uh, to the leadership of the people, and they are going to go through with Joshua into the conquest of the promised land. This is something that God has been talking about since the beginning of Pentateuch, or the Torah, way back with Abraham in uh, Genesis 15, that your people will go into slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and then when the sins of the Amorites is completed, I will bring them out with great possessions, and they will come back to this land, and they will live in it safely, and I will bless them and prosper them. That's Genesis 15. So from the beginning of Torah all the way to the end of Torah, it is like this preparatory guide. And you got to look at it like that. you got to look at the, 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 the first five books of Moses as, this is preparation for God's people, who are about to go to war with the, at the direction of God. with the blessing of God, with the empowerment of God to do a couple things. Number one, they're going to be instruments of his wrath against the unrepentant Canaanites and Amorites. Let me show you something from the biblical text. I did quote it, but I want to just put it up on the screen here and we can see if we can get there. Yeah. Um, He says in Genesis 15, look toward the heaven. Uh, That's going to be your descendants. Uh, he says, know for certain that uh, your, your children will, where, where are we? I lost my, my place. There we are. Verse 13. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land not there. They will be servants there. That's Egypt. Uh, he says, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. That's the plagues. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. And notice this line, for the iniquity, the sinful condition, the brokenness of the Amorites is not yet complete. 400 years, God allows the Amorites to practice the most inhumane, barbaric, unrighteous things, burning their children in the fires uh, to Molech, sacrificing each other, um, killing children, men, women, the disabled, widows, barbaric, historical, ancient practices. God just forbears with them hoping that they will repent and they do not. So Israel on the verge of the promised land conquest is now God's tool of judgment. Let us not forget that that is the biblical context here. God is enacting judgment on a sinful, unrepentant culture that's been given 400 years to repent. So this is not a law that Americans can apply to Mexicans. Okay, because that's not our context. So it's just important to see it that way. Number two, Israel is also going to be his chosen nation with better laws than the nations around them that will lead other nations to be attracted to uh, Israel. All you got to do to um, see that in the biblical text is go to Deuteronomy chapter seven And it says, um, way back down here, uh, where are we are down here? Hold on a second. Hold on a second. I'm going to find it. Deuteronomy chapter uh, seven, I believe, or maybe Deuteronomy four. Yes. Deuteronomy four. Hey, I can make mistakes live on the deep dive, right? He says, you shall not add to the word I command you. You shall not take away from it. You'll keep these commands. Um, And then he says in verse five of Deuteronomy four, see if taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do that in the land that you were taking possession of. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples. They will see this. And then when they hear these rules and these laws, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to us, near to it as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as this law that I set before you today. 
So understand again, back to my my point here is that Israel is a tool of judgment, number two, and a representative of light to the ancient world. The ancient world is going to watch Israel fulfill God's plan in the land, and the nations should pay attention to it and say, I want that. Whatever you've got with your God is better than what we're doing with our God. And if Israel had lived righteously, the other nations would have seen a blessed and prosperous and holy and just people, and they would have been attracted to Yahweh and have been converted. Of course, they do not do that. They fail. They miserably sin. They break covenant with God, and God gives them prophets and deliverers and and, uh, revivals, and nothing seems to work. And then eventually, he sends his son, and his son is the ultimate savior of the nation and ultimately the nations, because Jesus doesn't just come for Israel. He comes for the Gentiles. Okay, so that is the context. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 21 uh, is in a even smaller context. Okay, so we've we've gone from wide angle. Now we're going to go to a um, uh, microscope. Now we're going to the section, the later section of Deuteronomy. By the way, Deuteronomy is Deutero, second and Namas law, Deuteronomy. So we are now in a section of Deuteronomy called Laws Concerning Warfare. And in Deuteronomy 20, it starts with a law about don't fear the enemy. That's verses one to four. Uh, exceptions for those who just built a house, planted a vineyard, or got married. How about exceptions for those who fear battle? This is all the laws of how Israel will wage war. These are very much different than ancient warfare laws in other nations. Then what do you do with cities outside of the land when you conquer them? What do you do with cities inside the land when you conquer them? And then there is this just a general kind of out of nowhere prohibition against cutting down fruit trees during a siege, which is kind of interesting. And maybe we will look at it in our series as we study this. So that's the biblical context that Deuteronomy 21 falls in. God is not setting a law for all time, for all peoples everywhere. He is talking to his people who he has raised up as a tool of judgment and a light to the nations on how they are to live with Yahweh in their midst. And how are they to conquer with Yahweh on their side? They will not be, they will not be um, Attila the Hun type people. They will not be Alexander the Great type people. So with that in mind, now let's look at the text. So first he says, and we're going to take this uh, section by section, verse 10, when you go out to war against your enemies, right there, we see the context. You are going to war. So some key terms or a working outline for this uh, biblical interpretation. We're talking about warfare. This is a time of bloodshed and hostility. War sucks. War is hell. War is not God's idea. War happens. Uh, Man goes against man. It happens with the first family. Uh, Cain kills Abel. And then you have Lamech getting wounded and he wants to kill anybody who even dares to wound him. You have just the human condition, right? Then you have power. This is a big issue in this text. Who is given the power over another? And that leads to authority. Uh, What is allowed in the authority structures created by war? And then finally, where are the limitations on both power and authority in regards to ancient war? Now, all of this might seem like tedious to go through this, but we do have to break down this very difficult text to... (laughs) very systematically investigated in a way that leads to a further understanding of our Lord, right? That's what we want to do here in this text. So let's start with number one. Warfare is a time of bloodshed and hostility. So back to my original point is that God meets us halfway. Well, God works within human history as it is. This is the predicate of the Bible. When Adam sins, 
and mankind falls, God says, now you're going to struggle. You're going to suffer. You're going to, by the sweat of your brow, produce fruit. You're going to um, want to dominate your wife and she's going to want to control you. And then you're going to give birth in pain, Eve. And all these problems are going to be your reality. What did they do? They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge is to understand and experience something. Yada in the, in the Hebrew. It means to experience something. You're going to experience evil now because you ate. You wanted it. You took it. You ate it. And now that is going to be your lot. God does not just reset. He doesn't rewind the tape. He says, okay, now we're going to work together to make sure that we can work this out um, together uh, and not just uh, keep flooding the world again until we've got a perfect human race. Number two, suffering from war is inevitable due to sin. And this is just a fact because Cain kills Abel, Adam and Eve, I'm sure mourned and uh, didn't know what to do with Cain. God has to step in. He puts a mark on Cain. Uh, they have another child named Seth. Seth's name means substitute. Seth is a picture of Christ, by the way, who is substituted for us. And then number three, God's people are limited in this activity. They're not just going to war again in a barbaric way. So war is something that God is going to um, legislate, if you will, for Israel. And that is important because so many ancient cultures, when it was just about violence and conquest, had no boundaries, had zero boundaries. You can look at the Hamas-Israeli conflict right now. One side has boundaries, and sometimes they break them, and the other side has none. The other side will use women, children, and innocence as fodder for um, uh, generating compassion or sympathy from foreigners who don't understand the conflict or the ancient historical context of it. And the other side says, we do not do these things in war. We are trying our hardest not to do these things in war. Yes, there will be rogue agents in every army and we can't take responsibility for everybody's individual actions, but these are our standards. And that's the idea here. Israel is going to enact war in a way that God wants. Deuteronomy, uh, back to Deuteronomy 21, it says, you go to war and the Lord your God gives them into your hand. So now you've got power and you take them captive. Okay, you've got kept captives in your hand and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house. Okay, notice the ands, 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 ands. Interesting little thing about the Hebrew language. There is no word for then. The word for then has to be assumed by the biblical translator, the English translator. So he's saying, this is going to be what happens to you. And I'm sorry, this is going to be what happens in you and through you. You're going to go to war. And I'm sure this is how God, God is kind of saying he's assuming this is going to happen. You're going to go to war and you're going to see a captive and she's going to be beautiful and you can't control yourself. You're going to want to take her to be your wife and you're not going to kill her. You're not going to kill and you pray, Maybe you just killed her spouse. You killed her parents. And now she's alone and you have your heart goes out to her. So you bring her home. And uh, that's what ancient people do. It's because he, he, throughout, the, throughout the Torah, it's kind of funny. God keeps telling the people, I know your heart is hard. I know you're wicked people and I know you won't obey these laws. So here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to go into exile. I'm going to have to deliver you. And then I'm going to send them aside to save you. So it's almost as if God is conceding. Look, you guys won't listen. But because you won't listen, I even have laws for the time when you don't listen, which is kind of interesting. And it brings us to the limitation of power that God is implementing here. Number one, the, wo the, the woman captured is not to be enslaved. There is no mention of her being enslaved. In fact, she's supposed to be released if the man doesn't even delight in her after marrying her. Number two, she is to be taken as a wife, which, in, which implies responsibility. You want to take that beautiful woman, as many ancient cultures do, take advantage of the weak and the, and the powerless because they conquered their nation through warfare. Uh, well, you're not going to beat her and you're not going to treat her as chattel and you're not going to sell her. You're going to treat her as a wife. 
And that means you're going to provide for her and shelter her and, and protect her. Number three, she cannot be mistreated if he divorces her. So you divorce her. You can't then just go and say uh, she's, uh, you know, powerless to go find another husband. Uh, she's going to be, you know, always looking over her shoulder that you might come and take her back into, the pos into your possession. No, she's going to be free. In other words, she's going to be a regular Israelite woman now. She's going to be part of the culture that God wants to bless and prosper. And you have to, again, historical context has to ask us, it demands us to see God's compassion for the weak and powerless in a very difficult and far less than desirable situation, contextual situation, such as ancient warfare. Okay, back to the text. So he brings her into the house. Here's the prescription. And the prescription starts with the woman. So right off the bat, God is saying, er, stop, now you're out of control. And she has some rights here. So you take her into your home because I know you, you're going to do this because this is what people do in the ancient world. And it's not the ideal, but it's going to happen. And you bring her to your home. Okay, here's what's going to happen. She, <laughs> it's just amazing. That little, that little she right there is so significant because it is God giving the captive woman, the Gentile woman, the right in the Hebrews house to have time and to do things that she would probably need to do, having lost all of her nation and all of her family in a battle. By the way, this happens throughout the Bible. God in the scriptures addressed the weak and the lesser members of society, even in the most, you know, uh, disturbing passage for many women in today's world, Ephesians 5.25, it starts with women. Wives, submit to your husbands. In an ancient letter, to address wives was unheard of. Paul addresses wives because he is elevating their status in society, and they will be addressed through the letters to in how they will live as wives. So she shall what? Shave her head, pare her nails. And she shall take up the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and mother for a full month. After that, you may go into her and be your husband and she shall be your wife. All right. There, there are so many things in this text that are important. Number one, she's given three things to do. Mourn, um, which is she will lament the fact that she's lost everything and you have to put yourself in her position. And that is a horrible thing. And she's given 30 days to do this. Number two, she is going to um, shave her head. She's going to pare her nails. These were ancient pictures of mourning, but they were also ancient pictures of a identity transforming uh, transformation. She is no longer a slave woman. She's going to become a wife. She's going to become part of the society, but she has to cast off her old life. She has to cast off her old, her, her old identity and adopt a new identity. In fact, when a leper was cleansed, the law of the leper was he would shave his head. He would shave from head to toe and he would be rubbed with oil. And you have the picture here of a person who looks like a brand new baby because a brand new baby comes out. They have no hair and they look slippery and slimy. And the picture of being healed of leprosy is a picture of being born again. And so when we are born again, we are born as newborn infants. What Paul talks about in Galatians. And so we have this beautiful picture, even in the law of the healed leper of the born again experience. Well, here we have a woman who has been taken captive and she is shaving her head and she is paring her nails. And she's basically going back to childhood. She's going back to infancy to, uh, to assume a new identity and grow up into a new society that would treat her with dignity and respect, even though they conquered her people. Again, please don't think that I am in any way suggesting that this is an ideal law. I've already covered that. This is not an ideal law. This is not the final end be all end all of how, you know, holy war should be enacted. This is God working within the ancient world context to give rights, privileges and um, opportunity to people who would normally not have had it because Israel is to act as a better nation than all the nations around them. 
So she also is to wait for 30 days before he can have sex with her. Okay, now remember, a couple of things here. This is so important. This is so good. He is taking her into his home. Why? Because he's attracted to her. He saw her. She looks good. That's what men are driven by. They're driven by passion. They're driven by their eyes. This is why porn sells to men far more than it does women. This is why the magazine covers for men for cars have a beautiful woman in a bikini, you know, draped over the car. Men are attracted by their eyes. Well, this woman would have been attracted to him by his visual, by her visual appearance. He took her into his home because of her sexual attractiveness, if you will. And now she's shaving her head and paring her nails, taking off all her clothes and changing into different clothes. The attraction visually is basically being eliminated for the man. Now he sees a bald woman with no long nails and probably no makeup in different clothes. What she was visually, she is no longer. And he has to wait for 30 days. He has to wait for 30 days before he can even, (laughs) you know, adopt, uh, bring her into his bed and make her his wife. So think about this. Put yourself in the position of the man who thinks now I'm going to take this woman to be my, you know, my enjoyment, my self, my, my pleasure, enjoyment person, my, you know, my wife, my sexual partner. Uh, she's not looking like she was. She's different. And God is forcing this man now to wait for 30 days and looking at her in that condition for 30 days before he can have any kind of sexual pleasure with her. This is huge. I can't I can't describe this enough because it is limiting the man and his passions. It is saying, get your hormones under control, men. I'm giving you 30 days to look at her completely differently. And you're going to see her mourn for her father and mother. You're going to see her weep in your home for 30 days. And that is going to change. I don't care how strong of a man you are. I don't care how powerful you are. I don't care how sexy and beautiful she was. This is going to change how you see her. You're going to really think for 30 days about what you did to this woman. And she is going to have the opportunity to express herself freely in your home about what you did um, to take her away from her society. And even the most ardent, hardest, hardest, hard, hardest, hard hearted man would probably have a lot of mercy for such a person as that. And then in verse 14, uh, I don't want to treat this as a side note, but we have to address this as, but if you no longer delight in her, in other words, you married her even after 30 days, you shall let her go where she wants. She is to be freed, but you shall not sell her for money. You shall not treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. Okay, just understand that everything in the text is pro the woman having more rights than she would have normally had in any other ancient world context. Okay, the first part of the text is that assuming this is going to happen because man, man's hearts are hard, just like Deuteronomy 24 assumes that man hearts, man's hearts are hard and they're going to divorce their wives. But the, the person addressed is the woman, given all of these opportunities to mourn her family and change her appearance and not be treated badly and never be treated badly. She can't be a slave ever. She has to be assumed into Israelite culture. There's no law to make her a slave in this text. But if you and then it, and if you're done with her and you don't like her and you do want to divorce her, now she gets to be a free Israelite woman and get married again to somebody else. And the reason why is because you, you have humiliated her. All the onus is on the man. Do you see this? Which brings me to this uh, thought about authority and responsibility. That God's law applies first to human authority, even as Israel conquers her enemies. Okay, I'm giving you authority over the nations, but authority comes with responsibility. And authority, number two, is not autonomy. The word autonomy, autos, means self, and namos means law. Uh, autonomy is self-law. That is what America is so in love with, and we can't even figure that out. 
we, we, we give people all kinds of autonomy and they're more depressed than ever before. I was talking about this on the deep end last night is that there's a great move of progressive leftist w women in our culture that are getting uh, becoming Muslim <laughs> and, and willingly and gladly embracing this religion because they know that this idea of liberality and freedom and personal autonomy is not as great as it sounds. It leads to a lot of confusion, a lot of questions, a lot of anxiety and a lot of progressive leftist women are becoming Muslim because they see the safety in being controlled, which is crazy. I don't, I don't support that. I'm just trying to talk to you about the, the human condition. It's very complicated, but authority is not autonomy. And number three, authority is held to a higher standard. Authority is held to a higher standard than those that are not in authority. And this is James chapter three, when it comes to teachers of the law, uh, it's first uh, Timothy chapter three, when it talks about, or, or two, when it talks about pastors and overseers, they have to be held to a higher standard. They have to live righteously. And really what it comes down to, summing this all up is this, God is protecting, God is protecting the least powerful person in the time of ancient warfare by limiting the powerful person in warfare. No other nation, no other people group, no other ancient text or document even comes close to this standard. And that, that's the, the biblical context. Now, I hope I've made my point clear again. Let me just make sure, because I think repeating things that are important are, are essential. This is not in any way to say. This is a good law. This is what God really wants. He wants his people to take captives, other people. And when he finds a good looking, when, when they find a good looking spouse, they just take them into their home and they have them change their appearance. And, you know, this is not a prescription for all time. This, again, is working within the context of the human condition, the messy human condition that leads to damaged structures because of uh, damaged uh, people. And God is meeting them there and saying, we're going to provide a corrective here. We're going to provide boundaries and guardrails here. And we're going to lead people forward into a more civilized and a kinder and gentler or holier society. That is the idea behind this law, historically and biblically. Now, now for the real, the blessing in the text, because I guarantee you there's a blessing in this text. And it starts... Uh, when we get to Jesus, as all texts do, the blessing is when we see Jesus in the text. So that brings me to the gospel in context. Okay. Just so that we remember, the man goes to war against his enemies. God gives them to him. This is important. God gives them the victory. Okay. In the war. Just underline that. And you see you, the conqueror. Okay. You take a captive, a beautiful woman, and you desire her to be your wife. You bring her to your house. And then she what? She shaves her head. She pairs her nails. She takes off the clothes she was wearing when captured. She remains in your house. She laments her father and mother. She moves on from her past. Are you already starting to see? You should already starting to see where we're going with this at the gospel. Then after that, you go into her and you'll be her husband. She shall be your wife. But if you don't delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. In other words, stay faithful to her. This is a prohibition. This is trying to put all the onus on the man. Don't let this woman just be alone. You've got to take care of her. This is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus in this text is the conquering warrior who has defeated our master and has taken us captive, not as slaves, but as life partners. And the best part is he fulfills this law completely. He does not humiliate. He removes shame and he honors us. This is the gospel in an ancient war warfare text. 
<laughs> that actually fuels our faith and our love for Jesus in a way that I bet you never expected. Let me unpack it even further with New Testament parallel structures and Old Testament parallel structures. So Jesus is the conquering warrior. He's the one who wins the battle for our souls. Genesis 3 starts it off by saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall crush his heel. Or you shall bruise his heel. So the serpent will snipe at the woman's offspring's heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. Jesus does it at the cross. Though he is sniped in the heel by the serpent and put on the cross, ultimately his cross is the conquest of the serpent. Hebrews chapter 2, 14. Uh, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus is the conquering warrior. Colossians 2.15, it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing that over them in him. Jesus has conquered. Now, here's the mercy of God. Are you ready for this? Right in this text? He could have killed us. Jesus has every right to kill us as the conquering Lord of Lords and King of Kings who has defeated Satan. He has authority over heaven and earth. It's been given to him by God. And he does not kill his people. He saves us. He saves us because we were held captive to an enemy who was out to kill us and destroy us and shame us and humiliate us. And he is the one who has saved us from all of that. So that brings me to number two. Jesus is the captive taker. What does Ephesians chapter four, four say? It says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ, Christ's gift. Therefore, it says when he ascended on high, look at the language. He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In my Revelation study, I talk about how the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the first one is given a sword and he goes to conquer and to, con and to conquer. Um, that's a picture of the gospel conquering our hearts. Our hearts are at odds with God and God in his love comes and overrules our hardness with his love. God kills our hatred with his love for us. He overcomes that animosity that we have toward him by loving his enemies and dying for them and laying down his life for them. Yeah, beautiful. He's the captive taker. Uh, number three, he's the identity changer. So this woman would have changed her identity by shaving her head, paring her nails and changing her clothes. Those are New Testament references. We come to Christ and we, we assume a new identity. When we come into his house, we are no longer slaves. We are no longer foreigners. We are no longer strangers and aliens. We're now members of the covenant of promise. We are now members of the household of God. Uh, Ephesians chapter two, verse one, you were dead in your trespassing. You should have been killed. Your, your father, the devil was defeated and his followers should have been defeated with him. But, but Jesus took mercy on you. He saw you and he took mercy on you. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's who you were. You were a Satan follower, a Satan worshiper, even if you didn't go to Satan con or worship Satan in your room and play around with Ouija boards. Everyone outside of Christ is a son or daughter of the devil. That's who you were. You once walked amongst the, you once lived in the passions of the flesh, you carried out the desires of the body, the mind, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, this is what happened. He conquered Satan and in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. That's what the man who takes the captive girl captive does into his home. He loves her. He, he wants to marry her. 
Well, that's what God wants to do with us. With the love that which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming days, ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He is the captive taker. He is the identity changer. He is the conquering warrior. Um, when God changes our identity, he doesn't give us an option. <laughs> this is so important for so many Christians. If you're a Christian, you've been saved by him, through him, for him, because of him, not because of you. I take you back to the greatest conversion of all. The most talked about conversion in the Bible is the conversion of Saul of Tarshish to Paul, the apostle. And here's how God speaks to Ananias, who he asks to go pray for Paul after converting him. Uh, Acts chapter 9, 15, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. <laughs> there is no Paul is signing up for this. There is no, hey, Paul, here's an idea. Instead of killing my people, why don't you help grow them? And how do you feel about, you know, standing before kings and suffering and getting thrown into prison and all that? Like, there's no, there's no, <laughs> there's no conversation. There's no offer. There's just, this is what you're going to do, Paul. Period. And, and so what happens is when God moves upon our hearts, there is an identity change. By the way, first Peter picks up on this language uh, in first Peter chapter one, verse three says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He has caused us. This is such important language, guys. Come on. Don't miss what the Bible says. Don't miss how it says it. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. There is an identity that has already taken part in your heart, and you are going to continue to morph and transform into that identity more and more as the Lord works on you. And then finally... Jesus is the captive taker who does not, who does not divorce the wife that he's taken for himself. He holds her fast. Uh, Jesus is the faithful Lord of our new identity, family, and nation. Oh, we bring it right to Romans chapter 8, 37. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, present, past, powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that, my friends, is as beautiful a picture of our hope and our, our, our Lord's firm commitment to us, as you can find. This is what Deuteronomy 21, 10 and 14 is saying. It is not a one time for all law. And there are historical uh, equivalents that can't even come close to the dignity and to the ethics that God straps Israel into. And ultimately, it's not a permanent law to be adhered to for all time. It is a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us in saving us. In the end, what this text does is it teaches us the beauty of our salvation. And here I had this final conclusion, concluding thought about the, the text of the captive woman. Though Satan held us in his grip of sin and shame, enslaving us for the purposes of, of dehumanization, God in mercy sent Jesus to defeat our former Lord, that is Lucifer. He finds us and loves us. He changes our clothing, draping us in his righteousness and assigns our new identity. We are now joined to him in holy union, letting go of our past and embracing a future of beauty and blessing. And that, my friends, is how you're supposed to read these difficult passages of the Bible. Aren't you excited to do a lot more? I mean, I think if you're like me, your heart is like burning. Like, let's do another one. Well, for another day.
Uh, thanks for being here, guys. That is the show. I'm so glad that you were here. Make sure that you give the video a like and a subscribe if you're new to the channel and also click the notification bell so that your smartphone can do something smart for you. And that is tell you when we go live with new content. Uh, as you may know, we can also uh, use your support. So if you are interested in supporting us, just, you know, as you will, the cash app. But there's also a new thing that we have here on the channel, which is the membership plan uh, to have uh, just a, a regular, if you will, sponsorship of this program, this content, so we can bring it further than ever before. We're going to go beyond YouTube. We got blue plans and uh, we need your financial support. If you would be so kind as to do that, if not, you want to continue to enjoy all the free content that we give you, that's fine too. But just to let you know, when you support us, we support the Project Rescue Mission, which we just sent another check to this week and American Bible Society getting the Bible out to many hands, as many hands as possible. And we sent them another check this week as well. Thank you for supporting us because we give 10% to the Project Rescue and 10% to American Bible Society, and I want to grow what we are able to give. And of course, the last way that you can always support the channel is just liking, sharing, and subscribing this content. Share this on your social media. Hey, share this with a skeptical, you know, friend who doesn't believe that the Bible is really the true word of God because of these crazy ancient Old Testament passages. Somebody needs to hear this, and uh, somebody other than uh, Christians need to hear this because the Bible is true, and it's not just true for you. It's true for all people who will receive the love, grace, mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Other than that, I look forward to seeing you on the deep end after Thanksgiving. God bless you. Have a great night. In Jesus' name.